This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. We want to take a listen to a sermon that was delivered last week, September 24, 2017, at a church in Wilmington, North Carolina, where the pastor, Pastor Joe Santee, was speaking about communion. The whole sermon was on communion, so I thought we'd take a listen to it together. We're in Mark chapter 14 this morning. We're going to be looking specifically at the Lord's Supper, communion, uh, as it is introduced to us here, we looked at the larger context two weeks ago with chapter 14 as Jesus is coming to his last days, as he is preparing himself and his disciples for what is about to transpire. He's going to be betrayed by one of them. He's going to then go through a number of trials before different groups of people. He's ultimately going to be beaten and handed over and crucified. And so all of this is looming in the immediate future, but to prepare them for all of this, he has been telling them about what is going to happen, what is going to happen ultimately, and then he takes them to the Passover meal, which they celebrate together, which is the background for the institution or the beginning, the introduction of communion or the Lord's Supper as we know it and celebrate it. During the middle of this Passover meal, Jesus begins to talk to them about his betrayal. And then toward the end of the meal, he then takes the bread and the cup and infuses them with new meaning. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's look first in the text here chapter 14. And in verse 22, Mark tells us, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it in the new kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so this is it, just a few short verses to comment on something that has significant meaning for us as the church today. Uh, it's recorded in Mark chapter 14. Matthew and Luke also record this event. And then Paul comments on it and talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And that's really it. Just those four passages is all that we have that delineates here for us what this is. My first thought there is, how many verses do you need? Right? He's like, he's making the point here that there's only four places I really didn't have any problem with his his introduction there. I have no problem with it either. And I actually, when you think about the institution of the cardinal uh, sacraments of the Old Testament, how many times is God is is it recorded that God institutes circumcision, and how many times is it recorded that God institutes the Passover? It's only once. And so here we've got four separate recordings of the same same event. And uh, I'm not sure if he's downplaying that. In fact, uh, one might say 
God thinks it's so important that he that he makes sure that it shows up four times in four different places in the in the scriptures. And so we're going to spend a few moments this morning talking about the what and the why and the how of the Lord's Supper that we can uh, glean from these verses. So let's talk that God miraculously delivered them at the Red Sea and destroyed their enemies. When they forget these things, they begin to think not about who God is, but about who they are. They begin to not think rightly about who they are. They begin to put value in themselves and their independence that is not there. That we brought ourselves here. We did this. I did this. And God begins to fade into the background. And salvation begins to fade into the background. And grace tends to fade into the background. And God tells them, you need to do this on a regular basis to remind yourselves who you are and how you got where you are. Where you came from. You were slaves in a foreign land. And I, God says, I saved you. I delivered you. Because of my name, you are my people. Because of my reputation, I have continued to protect you. Jesus then takes all of that background and infuses it with new meaning. He now says, this is my body and my blood of a new covenant, which is for you, and I want you now as my followers to remember what I have done for you. All right, so what do you have to say about that, Pastor Bros? Well, what, I'm sure you've got a few things to say about that. <laughs> Go ahead, jump in. Well, you know, I mean, this is, this is the case for this sermon. This is the evangelical. This is the sacramentarian. The emphasis is all on you, and you better remember. Right, it's remem- I notice how, how strongly that comes out as a theme there. I thought about counting the number of times that Pastor Santee says the word remember, but then, then I thought, well, then you're just, you're just trying to be... Picayune, maybe. There you go. Right, that. right. Well, you know, the other thing that I think is interesting about this is really the translation of the word diatheke. And this, this occurs in Mark 24. It occurs in, in the other writers as well. And there's no question uh, that a diatheke in, in the Old Testament uh, is used in the Septuagint to translate the word covenant. Uh, but the more natural meaning uh, in Greek is uh, a last will and testament. And that's a, that's a very different kind of thing. You remember a covenant, but, but what happens with a last will and testament? Is that for remembering? No, it's not for remembering. It's for getting a gift. And that, that's completely lost. And, you know, it's too bad that there's not a good neutral translation out there, or at least a Lutheran translation into English of, of the scriptures, because we miss so much. I totally agree, and that's, maybe that's another podcast in and of itself, Bible translations, because so many Bible translations are provided by non-Lutherans, by sacramentarians. They entirely are. There's not one English translation out there that is a Lutheran translation. That blows me away. Why is there not a Lutheran translation? Because English happened to us. We didn't choose English. English happened to us. It got foisted on us, and it was a scramble. And there were mistakes made early on where we simply adopted the King James uh, Version, which is what all the churches were using, and we've simply stuck with the English translation tradition since then. So all these traditions stem from the King James, right, the, the authorized version, RSV, 
is an authorized version um, family member. ESV is an authorized version family member. Even NIV, uh, in spite of its strangeness, uh, is an AV um, family member. And so this is just sort of where we've gotten stuck, and it's, it's unfortunate. Well, it, it makes the pastor's job of not only knowing the original languages, but also teaching the people that much more important because not only is he trying to teach the truth of God's Word, he's trying to teach the accuracy of God's Word, but in a way that it's not necessarily written right there on the page. And the scary thing about that is is that it calls into question in the people's minds the validity and uh, accuracy of what they're reading, and, and that's a, a very dangerous road to go down. Or the confidence in the pastor. Correct. One or the other. One or the other. Right? What's this guy making up today? Pastor Santi has read the text for us, and what you're drawing out is is that the Greek word is diatheke, or covenant is how it's translated. This is verse 24, and he said to them, this is my blood of the testament, which is poured out for many. And your point is, is that the English, it loses this gift language. When you say covenant instead of testament. And so when we come to communion, it is an act of worship as we celebrate what Jesus has done for us in his death and burial in the payment for sin, that we were slaves to sin, that there was none who were righteous, none who follows God, none who seeks after him. And while we were sinners, Christ died for me, for you, for us. Pastor Bruss, is communion an act of worship? It's fundamentally not an act of worship, right? I mean, if you want to talk about directionality, is the directionality going from us to God or from God to us? It's coming from God to us, right? That's number one. But if you want to say that the highest worship of God is faith in the promises of the gospel, which is what the Lutheran confessions say, then yes, it requires, as Luther says, for these words uh, given and shed for you require all hearts to believe. Uh, yes, it is, a, it is an act of worship. We need to remember that because when we forget that, we begin to think differently about who we are. We begin to think about our own righteousness, our own self, our own independence, and God begins to fade into the background, and his grace and mercy begin to fade into the background, and we become very different people. So this is an act of remembrance. It's in the form of a meal, and we'll talk about that more in just a minute, but it's an act of remembrance because we are forgetful people. Israel is not the only group of people that tends to forget. We do as well. We need to remember. Here, I mean, what, what would you say? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree that the fundamental... That, that, you, that, that if, if you begin by talking about this communion, as he's calling it, as worship, then you've flipped the thing on its head. Exactly. It's, it's worship only secondly. Exactly. I would say that it is so much more than an act of worship. He's going to go on to say, this is an act of worship that is designed to remind us and keep us rooted squarely in our salvation. I tend to think to myself, that's it? That's all you've got? And what is there? Tell us what, what, what more there is. 
Well, it's the gift of forgiveness of sins. It's the gift of life. It's the gift of salvation. This is God coming to us. This is a theophany, as it were, where the Lord is coming to us in the sacrament itself. And so it's not this remote kind of thing that, that sort of helps us you know, go through this ethereal um, brainiac remembrance of what Christ has done, but it's Christ coming to us with what he has done and plopping it in our mouths. Instead of it being so sterile. Right. And so, as you were saying, one direction. But see, again, trying to communicate the evangelical mind to you, everything is about you to God. God is the one who receives. He receives your money, your worship, your remembrance, whatever that is. If you've done a good job at remembering, it's all one way toward God. This is why if you aren't cutting it, so to speak, you've got to put more effort in your directionality toward God. Toward God, yeah. More time, more effort, more... Devotion. uh, Sure. It reminds me of that book uh, that we just recently read by Dietrich von Hildebrandt on, um, you know, uh, liturgy and personality. There is that one comment that he made that um, the vocation of man is the glorification of God. And I wonder if our evangelical hearers would find interesting to know that a Lutheran views the evangelical errors to be the same exact errors as the errors of the Roman Catholic Church which they utterly reject. And that right there is just way too much for an evangelical mind to accept. Because if they were taught like I was, which is everything that the Roman Catholic Church thinks, does, believes, practices, it's all wrong. Everything about it. And so for you, who are you to come and... And say this. Yes, to chastise this whole swath of American evangelicalism and put them in the exact same category as the Roman Catholic? You know, what they what they object to, I, th- I think what's interesting, is they object to the, the formalism, number one, and, and so there's this sort of free-flowing idea with American evangelicalism and Roman Catholicism is the antithesis of this. You know, when you when you see the canon of the Mass uh, being performed, they're, they're just saying, well, this is just pure rote stuff. Somebody wrote it all down, and they're just saying it because they say it, and their devotion is empty and useless. So that's where the criticism is leveled, it seems to me. Okay. It, yeah, the actual wording is, the Spirit is not here. Okay. Still, the thing that lies at the bottom of both of these the Roman Catholicism, uh, the, the canon of the Mass, and so on, and the evangelical, as you were saying, the directionality is all toward God, is that the directionality is all toward God. It doesn't matter whether you call it remembrance or whether you call it re-sacrificing the body of Christ. The directionality is toward God. And this entirely misses Jesus's words, ta ecunomenon hyperpolon, which is shed for many I can't even sort of wrap my head or my arms around this idea that they're missing the gift nature of this whole thing. No doubt. And this was revolutionary for me when I realized that the directionality is not me towards God, but God towards me. When that shift happened in my, my thinking, it opened up a whole new world. My, my thoughts about God, they radically changed when I realized just that, that the direction is not about me towards God, because what can I give to a holy God? He's not interested in any sacrifice that I have to give him. 
What he's interested in is me receiving what he has to give me. The highest worship of God is faith in his promises. And so that turning right side up, it you know, changed everything. Help me understand this, and, and maybe this maybe this will be a good clarification for evangelical listeners. It's not like uh, Pastor Santee doesn't know the gospel. He, he's talked about it. Here's the deal. Is... I'm trying to understand, get my head around where the um, problem lies. Is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus uh, in the evangelical mind kind of like this stake that God plants on the timeline that says, after this, things change for you. Instead of you coming to me through sacrifices in the temple, blah, 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 getting circumcised and so on and so forth, now... You've got a, a new way of coming to me. I, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but we always remember that, that event in the past, that, that Christ did this. I guess it, it changes the outward trappings, but not the, not the, um, uh, the, the inward. Uh, of course, you know, this gets into dispensationalism and all that sort of stuff, right? I mean, no one, no serious theologian can possibly think that Abraham got square with God by getting snipped, right? Uh, is, isn't this correct? I love to hear you struggle with trying to figure out the evangelical melu. I just love it. I just, I like to let you run on that tether for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> and get, get wrapped around the tetherball yeah, right. pole. <laughs> Like you go absolutely nowhere, but you expend so much energy. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what what they're you know where the where the miss uh, where the misstep is. And well, where the, part of it, as uh, we've spoken about, evangelicals have no understanding of law and gospel. But there's another thing that Lutherans have a strong sense of enthusiasm and realizing that we're not guided by that spiritually speaking. The evangelical. He lives and breathes by enthusiasm. So we have good, we, we, Lutherans have good enthusiasm dar, like radar, enthusiasm dar. Is that what we've got? Exactly. Okay, so so when, we, when you say we have a sense for it, it means that we can, we can, we can, we can hear it. We, we know when we hear it. Right. Gotcha. Not that any Lutheran couldn't be swayed by that. Absolutely. But the point is, in the foundational documents, and this is one of the, again, yet again, another thing that drew me into the confessions, was Luther calling this for what it is. And then I had to look at my life and my church and think, we are a big bunch of enthusiasts, and I'm actually helping. I'm promoting enthusiasm. And, and just to explain for everybody what enthusiasm is, I think this is, uh, uh, we'll probably be returning to this word an awful lot, uh, but it means that you have God inside of yourself and that there's this sort of spontaneous divine guidance that uh, a Christian has. It directs his worship, it directs his piety, directs his good works. Is this, is this right? Yeah, exactly uh, and, right. And for a Lutheran and for any serious Christian, this cannot be where you find your directionality. Uh, you, you have to find it outside of yourself because the inside is so unreliable. And who is to say whether this motion is of God or of Satan or of the flesh? The highest forms, this is the Lutheran critique of enthusiasm, 
the very highest form of enthusiasm, the, the self-immolating worship of God is precisely the greatest depth of sin. And the reason is, it, is, is it be, it's because it's a tool to get right with God. And this is exactly what you've been explaining to me about the directionality of, of the evangelical, right? Uh, even, even with a gift like the sacrament of the altar. So going back to your point earlier, how are Roman Catholics enthusiasts? No evangelical would look in on a Roman Catholic church and say, oh, they're a bunch of enthusiasts. If you think of theology as a plant, and, and the healthy plant is rooted, firmly rooted in God's Word, and it grows from God's Word, they've pulled it out of the Word and let the plant grow you know, somewhere else. Uh, and, and that somewhere else is really in their heart. I mean, when the Pope uh, can claim to have special revelations in his heart, well, is this not the same problem? Is not every evangelical a little pope receiving little revelations in his heart? Is the only objection to the papacy that there's only one guy who can get these revelations? Really? If that's the issue, there's they're missing the point because the point really is that we have this external witness to the will and works of God in the scriptures and this is the only certain thing that we've got. So the Christian is to look outside of himself to God's Word, to his sacraments that he provides, both of which are gifts. In the Lutheran service, when we read the Scriptures, the people say, thanks be to God. That's interesting. Thanks be to God. Why? Because he's just delivered the gift. Right. Yeah. He's delivered the gift, and we didn't have to wait on a feeling or liver shivers or any sort of subjective evaluation. And I think this is, you know, this takes us down the road of an interesting pastoral problem. And and it's that uh, a lot of times Christians feel cold. They feel cold about the faith. And in feeling cold about the faith, they feel as though they have lost it. I spend an awful lot of time in private confession with people who, who confess this coldness. Now, what is that? What they're saying is, I don't feel like an enthusiast anymore. And you have to direct them then to God's objective work in their life. What makes them on God's side, if you will, is God's work, not their work. And you say to them, okay, you don't feel as though you're on God's side, but look, look, God hasn't given up on you. You are baptized. You do have his word spoken to you every Sunday in the divine service. And God is serious when he's doing that. He wants to save you. I heard just recently about a woman who was dealing with a fidgety child in church. And uh, after church, the pastor said something to her like, uh, well, I'm so glad you came today. And she said, well, I didn't get anything out of it because of my child. And the pastor said, well, did you receive the absolution of sins? Right. You know, right. like the whole idea that there were still gifts given to you, right. even though you were preoccupied with the child. Right. And, and yeah, that's that idea. Isn't that, that's the enthusiasm, isn't it? Right. If I can't um, <clears throat> go along with this intellectually, stay with the pastor, or even get ahead of the pastor intellectually. Or then, emotionally. Or emotionally, then I'm not the kind of Christian that I want to be. And we all fall prey to this. this exactly. This is a great danger. Uh, and, and, and there's, 
um, you know, it's the it's Mary and Martha. I mean, Mary and Martha are just a wonderful uh, picture of all of this. Martha is the classic evangelical, scurrying around, doing something for the Lord. Uh, <laughs> being busy. Being busy for the Lord. Uh, and Mary uh, simply receives, and Jesus uh, commends her, um, not because she's a better hostess, but because she recognizes in faith what God is like, that he's a giving God. True, but here's the problem even with the evangelical way to think through that. Evangelicals would slightly turn that a little bit, and they would fall off the horse on the other side by saying being more mystic. It's not about receiving. The directionality is still towards God for the evangelical. And so now it becomes you need to be quiet, you need to meditate, you need to journal, you need to memorize scripture. And I'm not saying that any of those practices per se are are bad. No, they're actually commendable. But the point is, is that it's still directed towards my movement, my busyness, my activity towards God. They still get that that wrong of Mary and Martha. Mm-hmm. So you just go from one ex- one type of busyness to another type of quiet busy- busyness, right? Exactly. Yeah. Instead of just receiving, the old Adam and us just cannot stand that passivity. Not only when it comes to our private devotions, but also when it comes to the corporate gathering of the body of believers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's do a little bit more with this sermon. What is salvation? What does it mean? Where did I come from and how did I get here? How do I exist in the grace of God? How do I experience the love of God? It is through Jesus Christ and his death. This salvation event ties together Old Testament and New Testament ideas of salvation, faith, belief in who God is and what he has done, and brings us to the point of remembering that and applying that to ourselves constantly, because that's where we as his people must exist, is squarely in his salvation. And so this act of worship is designed to remind us and keep us squarely rooted in our salvation. What say you, Pastor Bruss? Well, a few minutes ago, he or a few seconds ago, he talked about experiencing the love of God, which I think is an interesting language. And, and um, no one objects in principle uh, to this kind of thing. But I want to I ask you, Pastor Kearns, when you read Thucydides, do you experience the Peloponnesian War? The, the point is, I no more experience the Peloponnesian War by reading Thucydides than, than uh, by remembering it. I mean, it just, it's, not, it's, not the, it's not there. How do I experience God's love? This is the big question. Right. I mean, experiencing God's love, though, the way that he's talking, is totally enthusiasm. This is how evangelicals have been catechized their whole life. Mm-hmm. How did the woman at the well experience God's love? Jesus came to her. How did the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 7 and 8 experience God's love? He pronounced forgiveness. He pronounced forgiveness and Jesus came to her. How did blind Bartimaeus experience God's love? Jesus came to her. 
How did Zacchaeus experience God's love? Jesus came to her. Or the ten lepers. The ten lepers. I mean, go down the list. If we want to talk about experiencing God's love, let's talk about where Jesus shows up. And where does Jesus show up? He shows up where he promises to show up. This is my body. This is my blood. This business about a kind of, I don't know, I mean, what do you do? You work yourself up about the suffering and death of Christ, and, and that's how you experience God's love? No, uh, it's, it's entirely from the outside. And, and this is this, the entire scriptural MO. This is how God does it. How did, how did Adam and Eve experience God's love? He walked among them, right? I mean, he after they fall into sin and they're sh- ashamed and they recognize their nakedness and they, they've got to know. I mean, their, their, their responses to God have to be an indicator that they know they have screwed up in the biggest way possible. And what does God do? He walks among them. He comes walking to them. Well, and what we were talking about this past week in uh, the adult Bible class was the fact of even when he comes walking among them and he's asking them these questions, what is he wanting Adam to do? He's wanting him to confess his sins so that he can forgive him. But he won't do it. Right. He justifies himself. He gives his, gives his rationale. He, he shifts the blame. The woman, you gave me, God, all of this. Uh, You clearly, clearly are not picking up on this. Each one of these instances, before the Lord came to them, they sang songs for 45 minutes and waved (laughs) their hands in the air and got all worked up. (laughs) That's what blind Bartimaeus was doing, huh? But the problem was he couldn't see the screen with a bouncing ball. Oh, no. Oh, Oh, zing. So let's move now to this aspect, one of the questions that comes up, as the Lord's Supper in all of its many facets has been interpreted over the years, one of the things that we often hear is that it is a means of grace, that in the elements, as we partake of them, grace is extended to us. I want to look at Titus chapter 3 in relation to that question. Titus 3, beginning in verse 5, says this. Okay, we've got to talk about this right here. We absolutely do. Now, I, I have no clue where he's going with it. Right. Right, but is he, I, this is what I'm imagining. You tell me, uh, is he going to turn this passage inside out and make it say what it doesn't say? That's exactly what he's going to Excellent. do. Excellent. Excellent. He begins by saying how it's not going to be a means of grace. And then he turns to Titus chapter 3, which is a clear passage dealing with a means of grace, but not for communion, but of baptism. But of baptism, he's not even going that's not even going to pick up on his radar that it's about baptism but what he's going to emphasize here is how there is no work that you and I can do in which we obtain grace grace ironic isn't it that receiving the sacrament of the altar or being baptized is is not a work that we do it's a work that God does for us but conversion in the evangelical world is making a statement that it's actually saying, look, hey, everybody, I'm on Team Jesus now, isn't it? Yeah, it's an act of your will. An act of the will. Isn't that something else? Uh, so, again, upside-down theology. He continues here. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us, richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, 
that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Or Ephesians chapter 1 or Ephesians chapter 2, all of these passages speak to this idea. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. It is not based on works. And so, if we mean by the elements of communion, the elements of the Lord's Supper convey the grace of salvation to us in some format, I think Scripture speaks against that idea. How are we saved? Not based on anything that we do, but based on his complete work at the cross. By grace we are saved through faith. We believe, we accept what he has done and his finished work, and that provides our salvation. It is his grace in that way. So, the elements of communion do not bestow salvation upon us or any more of salvation. How much salvation do we receive when we are saved? All of it. It's completed. So, when we come to the table, we are not coming to receive more of salvation. We are not coming to be re-saved. It is not extending the grace of salvation in that way because Christ's work was finished, and when we accept that, when it comes to us by faith, it is complete. The Lord's Supper is not a magical means of cleansing or forgiveness of sins. What is this? You know, this is classic argumentation. He's creating a straw man. By throwing in this whole magical, magical, magical. Exactly. And, you know, Lutherans are guilty of this, too. Uh, When we talk about certain Roman Catholic practices, we'll talk about, you know, uh, uh, this isn't magic, uh, turning the body, uh, turning the the, the elements into the body and blood of Christ. That's not a magic. God doesn't do any magic. That's, That's shorthand. And it's actually unfair, and and we should probably shut our own mouths about that kind of thing, uh, because there is a, a much uh, more detailed argument, and and we have to we have to engage the argument at the at the point where where it's being made, and not do an end run around it by calling it magic. I object a hundred percent to this idea of magic. What did God do when He created the world? He said, "Let there be light." Was that a magic act? I think there was. Fairy dust. Fairy dust. There must have been floating in the air when he, he did that. He had his hat, right? Mm-hmm. His magic wand. And <laughs> and, and what, what did God do when uh, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down? Was that a magic act? What did What did he do when um, the prophet floated up the axe head from the bottom of the river? Was that a magic act? No. Evangelicals, if you're listening to this, understand th- this argument for what it is. This is unfair argumentation that's setting up a straw man only to tear it down. He is not dealing with the real contention of Scripture that God uses means. What does the Word of God tell us in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. For the bulk of my life, I've been in evangelical services. I can't tell you a time where the people came together and confessed their sins before God. Isn't that amazing? Is there an occasion when an, when an evangelical does this, uh, ever? I mean, individually? Oh, maybe at a camp or something okay. like that around the fire on the last night. I'm not saying it has never happened. But when it comes to Sunday morning, 
As a regular practice. As a regular practice? No. Now, there might be some evangelical church out there in the world that does that. I'm just saying by my limited experience, which again has spanned over 40 years, it is not a regular part of the corporate gathering of the believers. Does it say anything about any magical formulas or elements or things that we must do to find forgiveness of sins? No, we confess. We bring our sin before him, confessing it before him, agreeing with him that it is sin. He is faithful to forgive us. So again, what Pastor Santi is referring to is something that happens between your ears. If confession is agreeing with God about uh, your sinfulness, which is exactly what it is, it's where you shut up, you hear God's law, you say, mea culpa, when you do this, this is agreeing with God that, yes, indeed, I am a poor, miserable sinner. There's no practice of this in the evangelical church. You know, it's, it, it's interesting. If you, if you look at the words themselves here in, in, the, in the Greek text or just even in the English text, I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to replace it. I, I'm going to put words in that make it say what the evangelical thinks about ha- all this happening upstairs, okay, and in their head. First uh, John 1, 8. If we say that we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, look at all those say and speak words. Let's, let's read this evangelically now. If we think that we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we think in our heads that we do have sin, he is faithful and just. Th- this misses the, the oral communication that's, that's going on here. I guess what's happening is you're, you're short-circuiting the, f- the first part, the speaking part. Therefore, you must also have to short-circuit the, the backside, which is where Jesus says, whosoever sins you forgive, they have been forgiven, and whosoever sins you retain, they have been retained. Something is happening in real time, in real space, with sound waves here, as John is describing it in 1 John chapter 1, just as something real is happening with sound waves in John chapter 20. Well, it's also in Romans, the evangelical would believe faith cometh by hearing. Like, they believe that, but when it comes to confessing your sins and receiving absolution, which are yet more sound waves, more words? No, sir. But see, this is consistent with the Lord's Supper in that the duty of the Lord's Supper or your duty of in during the Lord's Supper is to remember. Right. It's the yet- evangelical's duty. Oh, it's all it's all upstairs. It's all upstairs. It's all ethereal, isn't it? I also wonder if there's some element of anti-clericalism underlying this, this, this thing that who is a pastor to stand between me and God? The fact of the matter is God has established pastors to stand between you and himself as his emissaries, uh, just as he says in Luke 10, uh, he who hears you hears me. But couldn't you say that some of that is born out of the radical reformation 
Absolutely. And then to, to make matters worse, then we come to America and we've got this independence and we don't need anybody telling us what to do or, or what have you. I mean, with these, these seeds that have been planted for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, this is just the this is just the fruition of or the the fruit of that. Yeah, this is fer- America is fertile ground. Democratic society is fertile ground for this kind of thinking. Let's pick up Pastor Santi. So what Jesus was instituting to his followers was not some type of magical meal where you came to get more of him or more salvation, more grace, more faith, more forgiveness to be cleansed in some way. That is not what this was doing. Jesus is providing for them an act of worship that should cause them to remember salvation, what he has done, and who they are now because of it. All of the grace of salvation was bestowed when they were saved. Why do they need to remember if it's they've got it all already? What's the point? Just because God commanded it, ordained it, is that, is that the idea? But if that's the case, why stumble then when God ordains a meal and clearly says for you for the forgiveness of sins. I just cannot go there. And what it does is it totally strip mines everything that God wants to deliver to us. That is a good talk about that. Just the fact that here are all these wonderful gifts that God wants to give us, forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. And this is just in communion. There are other gifts that the Lord wants to give us. But we just throw it all out to be what? Rational? Yeah, you know, I suppose theologically in their mind, what at least their, their rationale here is that if you say the Lord distributes the forgiveness of sins in the sacrament of the altar, you are somehow diminishing what the Lord Jesus did at Calvary, correct? The, I guess the, this must be this must be what it is, I, and that's kind of what I'm hearing here, as if it's a diminishment. But look, folks, if 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 this is the case, then when you get your inheritance, uh, when your parents die, and you read the will, and there's a million dollars in the bank, don't go get it because Dad already earned it for you. There's no need for you. You just remember that good old Dad gave you that million dollars. Don't go get your million dollars. That's exactly what's happening here. So remembering the million dollars, will that help pay off my kids' braces and my uh, my school debt and the car that we just got through buying? No. That's not, no. Remembering it's not going to deliver the goods? No, it's not going to. No, no, no. And, and the same thing is true. So, so here's here's another thing. There must be an anthropological problem in their theology as well, this lack of realization of the, the, the very real struggles that a Christian uh, lives with on a day-to-day basis, uh, struggles against sin. And so, you know, I, I love what you're saying about your kids' braces and your, your school loans and all that sort of stuff. You accrue debt throughout your life, real debt, braces, car loans, and so on, just as on a daily basis you accrue debt. I've sinned already this, this morning, and I'm probably am sinning right now. Here's the problem. 
my conscience bothers me. I cannot stand before God with a clean conscience, knowing that I'm a baptized believer called by him by the gospel to live a life of righteousness, knowing that I cannot flee my sin and therefore can't stand before him. This is the predicament that every single Christian is in. Who's a Christian? And so what God says is, go to the bank. The million dollars is there waiting for you. Go to the bank and get it. That's what the means of grace are. Which is an absolutely beautiful thing. And this is, I've got two thoughts. One is what you said in a previous podcast, where you said, faith cometh by hearing, but faith is nourished by the forgiveness of sins. That is a gem to hold on to. This is something the evangelical has no concept of. Maybe it's one side of the quarter, right? Mm -hmm. Faith cometh by hearing. But then after faith cometh, it's all up to you. Gotcha. They don't understand the backside that faith is nourished and strengthened by the forgiveness of sins. And the means of grace is what gets us the forgiveness of sins. Second thought I have is this. Do the evangelicals—oh, this is, this is going to sound really bad. Do the evangelicals, do they really know who Christ is? I know that sounds really bad, and I, I've been thinking about this myself. If, if your Christ does not bring you the forgiveness of sins, you've got like his arm only or something like this. This isn't the same Christ of Scripture. That's troubling. It's very troubling to me. You know, maybe maybe what's echoing in your mind right now is uh, Luther's words to um, to Zwingli at the Marburg Colloquy. Right? We are of a different spirit. That's exactly what I think about. And when he said that, we are of a different spirit. I mean, there's only the Holy Spirit and that which is of the devil. So it wasn't just like we can agree to disagree. He was saying to him, I'm of the Holy Spirit, and you. You, you figure out what your spirit is, <laughs> but it ain't the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and those were cr- crushing words for Zwingli to hear. He I think he exactly, cried. Did I, he not? Maybe, maybe that's right. Uh, you, you may well be right, but it, they were crushing to him because he knew very well what Luther was saying. So it is not something magical that we need to participate in in order to remain saved or to uh, gain forgiveness or some such magical means as that. Let's move on to another common question that is dealt with within the church. Are the elements his body and his blood? Okay, good question. Pastor Bruss, what would you say? It's a wonderful question, and it's been, uh, what would you say, asked and answered by the Lord Jesus himself? Very clearly. Yes, this is my body, this is my blood. Well, let's see what Pastor Santi says. So Jesus said, take this is my body, take this is my blood that was shed for you. Okay, good. Can we stop right there with the words of Jesus? We really ought to. And in the church over time, this has been interpreted a number of different ways. Uh, there's the Roman Catholic version, which is um, called transubstantiation because we don't like any short words. We like to make them really long. Uh, which means that the elements, the bread and the wine, or the bread and the cup, are actually transformed into the physical body of Jesus Christ every time. Okay, no doubt that's exactly what transubstantiation is. According to the Roman Catholic Church, right? These are converted, and uh, just to point out, the Scriptures themselves don't speak in this way. The, The cup of blessing which we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ, 
the the bread which we uh, is a bless or break. This is First Corinthians ten. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? In other words, there is no disappearance of the elements of bread and wine. However, uh, there is a simultaneousness of the body and the bread, the blood and the wine. And so this came about as a result of Thomas Aquinas, and actually there were others before him that were trying to offer a philosophical understanding of what actually is going on. Right. You know, the interesting thing is that it was a confession of the truth that went awry. Uh, what, what Thomas was trying to do was to explain how Jesus's words could be true. We can't wrap our head around it. And so Thomas came up with this theory, and, and perhaps others, uh, of transubstantiation. Turns out that doesn't hold water based upon Scripture, but it was a brave attempt to maintain the truth in the face of the error that it isn't the body and blood of Christ. But Luther came along and said that what Thomas Aquinas had posited was sophistry. Why did he call it that? He called it that because it was too philosophic, relying on Aristotelian philosophy, correct? Precisely, precisely. So so Luther's criticism of Thomas is not that he's trying to maintain the real presence, right, the, that, that the bread is the, is the body and the, the wine is the blood. Luther's problem is, is that it needs to be, in Thomas's mind, it needs to be undergirded by a philosophical explanation. And Luther rejected that and said the scripture is enough. Exactly. So wouldn't you say as well, the problem with the Romanist at this point is that he took or that they took Thomas Aquinas's theory and elevated it to dogma and thus saying, if you don't believe this, then you're anathema. Exactly. Exactly. Martin Luther um, differed with the Catholic Church over that just a little bit, and his view has been termed, uh, has been come to be known as consubstantiation. All right, so I know you want to say something here, Pastor Bruss, but really this is yet again where the evangelical doesn't really do his homework, does he? I would say so, and consubstantiation is a term used by others about Lutherans and not of Lutherans themselves. It's interesting, his bag of big bad words is getting fuller, isn't it? First it's transubstantiation, now it's consubstantiation, Again, is this not a straw man that if you have to use a big word to explain something, it's, it's wrong? That's, that's hogwash. You know, sit down, if you're listening to this, and write out the word vicarious atonement. Is that a dear phrase to you? I hope it is, but uh, I hope you get the spelling right on that. It's a long phrase. That's, it's not wrong because it's, it's long. That's, that's ridiculous. So don't, don't buy that. Second point here, however, is I would say that the Luther would would you agree with me on this, Pastor Kearns, that the Lutheran perspective is not consubstantiation. You could say it this way: is means is. That's it. It's very straightforward. <laughs> it really is straightforward. <laughs> uh, which, in which he said, the elements don't actually become the physical body, but Jesus' presence is there in, under, and through the elements. He doesn't really he doesn't really nail Lutheranism no. at all. He he just is not hearing it. Luther, you know, physical presence, I, I'm not even sure. Um he's just getting his categories mixed up here. All we have is Christ's promise that the bread is his body and the wine is his blood. And that's where Luther rests. Calvin disagreed with both of them 
and came up with a more symbolic understanding or interpretation that the elements symbolize the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Yet again, this is just more evidence, in my opinion, of somebody not doing their homework. It's like they're just spouting off the party lines, not really digging any more than, say, a water bug on the surface of the water. There were plenty of other people before Calvin who started talking about the symbolic and the representation. Calvin wasn't the one that originated that idea. He was actually, from what I understand, he was one who was trying to find this middle ground between Zwingli on one side, who is the one who said it represents, and even though there were others before him, but let's just stick with Zwingli, and Luther, on the other hand, that was talking about the real presence. Calvin was one who said that we ascend into the heavens and sup with the Lord Jesus there. There's a spiritual presence for Calvin. So symbolism is not does not loom large in his thinking. It's really the spiritual presence of, of Jesus. And so depending on where you go in the Christian world, you may find one or more of these uh, views or beliefs operative about what happens in the elements as they are given. All right, it seems to me from his line of argumentation thus far, Pastor Santi is now going to tell all the people the truth. Finally, here's everybody who's done things bad. Everybody who's a part of the Roman Catholicism, they're all wrong. Everybody who's Lutheran or who subscribes to what Luther says, they're all wrong. Anybody who's a Calvinist, they're all wrong too, even though, you know, he's, he's going to lay down the law here at this point, or at least this is what I am expecting. Anticipating. I am too. Um, so let me, I will just explain um, my understanding of this as we go through this and why I think this is um, important. Jesus was sitting there with the 12 as he said to them, this is my body and this is my blood. Did they understand that the bread and the cup became his body somehow while he was sitting there in his body? I don't think they did. I don't think they understood that the elements physically became his real body right there as they're sitting there looking at his body. Um, I don't think that makes any sense to any of them in that context. Okay, so his first out-of-the-shoot attack here is to almost psychoanalyze what the disciples are thinking. Is that correct? This amazes me that, that he actually knows what the disciples are thinking, number one. Number two... The argument could be marshaled uh, against all sorts of different things, like Jesus claimed to be God. You know, um, these guys spent three years with the Lord Jesus, and th there's no doubt, and I, I'm going to be a little crass here, they saw him get sick, they saw him have diarrhea, they saw him puke, they saw him sweat, uh, they saw all the ugliness of the human condition, the sort of aesthetic ugliness of the human condition, and Jesus makes a series of statements, I am, I am, I am, saying that he's, he's God himself. And the fact of the matter is that they take him at his word. They take him at his word consistently. There are times when, when they goof up, they're rebuked for their unbelief. You know, St. Peter rebuking Jesus, saying, don't go to Jerusalem to suffer. I'll, you know, I'll go with you. And what I'm doing, you cannot do. And Jesus' sharp rebuke, get behind me, Satan. You're not taking me at my word. 
and we get no such rebuke. So when Jesus says, when a lot of people in John 6 leave him for some of the harsh things that he is saying, and then he looks to the disciples and says, do you want to go too? Peter, the spokesman for all of them, says, you have the words of eternal life. Right. That's a wonderful, that's a wonderful example, isn't it? Where, where the disciples uh, ultimately, in spite of their many failures, rest their faith in the word of God. And here we have a clear word of God. This is my body. This is my blood. And there's no balking here. But in Pastor Santi's mind, clearly there is in the sense that they go, oh, that's not what he means. Clearly he means something else because his body and his blood are right there in front of him. Right. And these sophisticated peasants uh, from Palestine are saying, oh, yes, the Lord Jesus is using aloiosis here. Uh, they, they've already got the uh, rhetorical device that he's using. They've labeled it. You know, they've put it through their little interpretation machine and come up with the right answer. Humbug. So let's back up just a second out of the biblical text, per se, and just go into the evangelical mind for a few moments. That'd be great. Here is a group of believers who firmly believe what the scriptures say, or at least this is what they profess to believe. They are given a clear word from the Lord Jesus and yet in not even catching their breath, they're going to deny it outright. What, what is going on up here between the ears to make them so quickly change and believe something completely other than what Jesus has said? I do wonder about this, and I've, you've probably bumped into this as well. When I was in uh, Tennessee a number of years ago, in the evangelical world, in the Bible Belt, it seemed to me that there were people whose Christology was deficient in that there was a failure to recognize the, the, the real sort of blood and guts nature of the Incarnation. And I had a Christology test. I could always tell where people stood based upon the Christology test. And it was this, as you're talking to Christians, did Jesus ever poop his pants? And you'd get some people who were just aghast that you would ask the question. Well, guess what? When they're aghast at that, they have a defective Christology. And I think that this is bred in the evangelical mind, if, if you will. I, I, I have no hard evidence to give here. But, but the deficiency of the Christology is a failure to recognize the real flesh and blood incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my point is, is this in connection with what we're talking about. You're saying what's going on with this particular passage that they are unwilling to recognize the body and blood of Christ in the bread and wine in the sacrament of the altar. What I'm arguing is that they're actually unwilling to countenance the fullness of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. A sort of docetism, perhaps. Okay. A sort of unwillingness to tarnish the divine nature of, of Christ. Well, you think about the pictures that we've seen all of our lives in Church of Jesus. I mean, there are these beautiful Vidal Sassoon models. That guy doesn't poop in his pants. Exactly. He doesn't have a hair follicle out of place. Right, but compare that to the iconography of the Reformation and of the medieval period. Oh, where Jesus was not just hanging on a cross, but it's Jesus in agony hanging on a cross? Correct. And he looks emaciated. 
you know, they do every. I mean, crucifixion was this horrifying thing. That's an interesting question. How many crucifixion scenes do you see in an evangelical church? Zero zip nada? Zero zip nada. Right. This is what I'm getting at with this, this deficient Christology. Uh, and we've talked about it before as God with his fingernails getting dirty. Keep the, keep the scrub brush right by the sink. And, and as soon as God gets a little speck of dirt in there, we like, clean you get up. it out, you get it out, and scrub, scrub, scrub so that God doesn't have dirty fingernails. Humbug, God wants to have dirty fingernails. This is the whole point of the incarnation. So I am thinking about a conversation I had one time years ago with a, a Jewish guy who did not believe in Christ as the Messiah. And I remember asking him, you know, why? What, what, is the, what is the big deal? And he said, we just cannot imagine a God who comes among us and does what we do, i.e. defecates, spits, vomits. I mean, all of these things that you're pointing out. Their idea of a Messiah he cannot be so earthy. Uh, he, he cannot be this way. So it's interesting how you and I have reflected earlier about how evangelicals are just like the Roman Catholics in, in their direction of worship. Instead of God coming to you, it's them trying to push to God. Well, here we see the evangelical also is like the Jew who does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Isn't that amazing? Uh, and yet, in the very uh, creation of our first parents, uh, what does God do? How does he make Adam? He forms him from the dust of the ground. Dirty. Dirty! Exactly! God had to wipe his hands on his apron, uh, if, if you will. Oh, is he Masonic now? Is he is, <laughs> no. got this lambskin apron going on? I'm thinking of like a British farmer. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> And isn't this the isn't this what the Lord does all all along? The irony of this is is that is that I'm sure I mean every Christian has to acknowledge this that their God is not a God who is far off. We all we all confess this. He's not uh, uh, like the God of the deists who you know sets the top spinning and just says, well you know I'm, I'm going to leave it go and uh, we'll see how things wind up. Uh, he's actually a God who intervenes in history and in, and in life in tangible ways. Burning bush, ram caught in the thicket, uh, you just go, uh, the angel in the furnace, just go down the line and, and we all countenance that the Lord interacts in human life. And the quintessential acting in human life is becoming, uh, you know, the, the, this whole confession um, that Jesus was born of a virgin. How many children in that society who were supposedly born of a virgin <laughs> do you think people had a high regard for? Mm. None. Immediate None. scandal. Immediate scandal. This is how God chooses to come to us. And he remains this way. Even so much so that I'm thinking about when uh, the Lord starts washing feet. Right. Good example. What is What does Peter say? No, 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 no. Right. Wrong direction. Exactly. You should not be doing this for me. This is a, a lowly position. Very good. And you know, isn't this inter isn't this interesting? Let's go let's let's talk about this because I think you're onto something here, specifically on this question of what the disciples are thinking. Mm -hmm. That corrective occurred in the upper room before the meal in John. 
correct? And John doesn't give us the meal, but it, it but it happens as they enter the room. This is when you do the, the foot washing. You don't do it after dinner. Right. And we don't have to speculate what Peter was thinking because the word clearly tells us what he was thinking. Precisely. And Jesus sets the record straight, doesn't he? And that has to recall all of these, all of these things that he's already told them, right? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And, uh, you know, this, this uh, sort of overwhelming recollection of what Jesus had said is, is flooding back into their heads. And then he says to them at the end of the meal, this is my body, it's for you. And we get no kickback, not one. Isn't it interesting? Can you, can you imagine what the kickback must have been like? So they're all reclining there, uh, and what what does Peter say? Um, Jesus, excuse me, uh, <laughs> could you clarify what you're saying? <laughs> what you really mean is represents? No such conversation. And so I think they would have had in that setting a very different understanding of the symbolic nature of what Jesus is saying. This represents my body, this represents my blood for what I am about to do. Additionally, um, and you can argue the, the theolog- you can argue with theologians about this. If Jesus' body becomes in the elements all over the world every time someone partakes of the Lord's Supper, then Jesus' body has to be omnipresent in some format, which it didn't seem to be in his resurrection. His physical body was localized to that one place and time where he was, and they saw him there. Pastor Kearns, what does your email signature say? It says, Dextera Dei Ubique Est. It means the hand of God is everywhere. The right hand of God is everywhere. Look, this guy never said it, uh, but he is a follower of Huldreich Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, the radical Swiss reformer. In that he is taking everything that Christ has said, and now he's using, he's using his blind reason to try to explain what Jesus is saying rather than allowing Jesus' words to just be Jesus' words. Now we've got to explain it all away. Precisely. And, and the, the blind reason, right? So let's, let's, let's expose what underlies this. Uh, there is a philosophical rule that says that the, uh, I'm going to say it in Latin, and then I'll say it in English, finitum non capax infiniti. The finite is not capable of holding what is infinite. And, right. and this is proven on, on, on an everyday basis. Take a one-cup measuring cup and pour a gallon of water in it. Can't do it. Can't do it. It doesn't fit. Now, God himself is infinite. He's infinitely larger than a gallon of water. And a human body is finitely larger than a one-cup measuring cup, but it's finite. It's six feet tall. It maybe weighs 160 pounds. And the question is, how in the world does God of God fit inside of a human body? The answer is it can't from the perspective of these guys. Therefore, the divinity cannot be imparted to the human nature in any meaningful way. It's amazing to me He's talking about this localized bodily presence, which we all confess, right? Jesus was locally present with the disciples in the upper room. He was locally present with the disciples when he rose again from the dead and came and stood among them and and, uh, said, peace be with you, receive the Holy Spirit on on the night of Easter. He was locally present. But guess what? He walked through a wall. Well, this demolishes 
their Christology. Because when was the last time you walked through a wall? Uh, occurrence? No, no, that doesn't that doesn't, that doesn't happen. <laughs> and moreover, he passes through the grave clothes. He passes through the stone. He wasn't knocking on the door for the angels to let him out. Right? Hey he guys, passes I'm in through here. Exactly. <laughs> Help me out. So you're saying that Pastor Santi, really unbeknownst to him, he is following just right in line with how the radical reformers, Zwingli for one, even though there were others, just following hook in line with them, taking his reason to a place that is actually above the revelation of Scripture. Yes, indeed, and, and acting in judgment over it. And that should be so convicting to any evangelical who actually just just thinks about what they're doing and saying when they agree with what Pastor Santi is saying. Yes, I think so. And, and, you know, just something strikes me here. We're talking about deficient Christology. Just before we were talking about deficient Christology, and now we're talking about deficient Christology. What is happening here in the evangelical mind is that On the one hand, they are not letting the incarnate God be fully human. He doesn't poop his pants. And on the other hand, they are not letting the incarnate God be fully God. He can't be everywhere. And this is a huge problem. Now, this all rests on the interpretation of one verse in Scripture. Acts uh, chapter 3, verses... uh, Well, let me just start off reading at verse 18. Uh, So this is a sermon by Peter, and he's saying... But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Now, here's where the problem is. That's verse 22. That's the passage. That's the kicker. And this passage uh, was highly debated, hotly debated, uh, during the time of the Reformation. Now look, the Lutherans too, and I feel really bad about this, are reading out of these reform-slanted uh, scriptures, okay? So every, um, you know, there's the, the, the famous uh, Italian saying, um, uh, and I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but let me translate it. Uh, the translator is a traitor. And in this case, the text is, is sorely betrayed. In Greek, what this says, you know, for those of you who know Greek, verse 21, Hon de uranon mendexastai ahri chronon apokataseos panton, blah, blah, blah. Now, here is the problem. The word uranon here in Greek lacks the article. And in lacking the article, it is not functioning as the subject of its clause. So the translation comes out in in English, in the standard English translation, as whom heaven must receive. But actually, what it says in Greek is who must receive heaven. So in other words, Jesus, after his resurrection from the dead, he receives heaven. And the picture with the other translation is, is this, that Jesus is up there in, you know, in Al Gore's lockbox. Oh, yeah, we've talked about the lockbox. Yeah, the lockbox. He's up there in the lockbox. And he's stuck. You know, God said, here's my right hand. You've got like nine cubic feet fit in there. 
and you can't go anywhere else, Jesus. I'll call you when I need you. Exactly. Yeah, when I when I set you free, uh, you can go and you know judge the world. Well, look, you know, uh, as you say in your email signature, the right hand of God is everywhere. Someone tell me where God is. He's everywhere. Yeah. Right. So where's his right hand? It's everywhere. And if Jesus is at the right hand of God, can he not be on altars? The argument would be, no, he can't because he has a body and that body cannot receive the fullness of the divinity. And of course, this belies everything we read in Colossians and Ephesians and in, in him dwells the fullness of the, of the deity in, in, in bodily form. So when Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me, in heaven and on earth, that's really not all authority, is it? Yeah, he's kind of restrained, isn't he? He, he doesn't have free reign to be to execute justice. He's got to work by, by laws. Whose laws? Well, Pastor Santee's. Um, but I won't go into that anymore. But one of the things that we see throughout Scripture, especially in the Gospel of John, is G- Jesus said a lot of things about himself that we don't take any of these other things in this literal fashion. For example, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. We understand the metaphor. We understand the figurative nature of what he is saying. We don't think that Jesus literally turns into a vine, and we turn into branches when we speak of that. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. We understand the figurative nature of the relationship between Jesus being the good shepherd and us being the sheep. But we don't think Jesus was actually a shepherd. He said, I'm the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, or I am the gate for the sheep. And we don't think that Jesus turns into a gate every time we read that passage or think about it or talk about it. So Jesus spoke in this figurative language about himself often. He said, I'm the alpha and the omega. We don't claim that Jesus is the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. That doesn't make any sense. We understand the figurative nature of the language that he was using, and I think the 12 disciples sitting there at the table understood when he said, this is my body and this is my blood, they understood the figurative nature of what he was saying. And I think that is consistent with what we see uh, throughout Scripture. This is such low-hanging fruit. I mean, Pastor Santee is, you know, giving us his best evidence for his Zwinglian perspective. And so now he's going to say Jesus uses figurative language in other instances. Therefore, it should be used figuratively. I've got just sort of two reactions, and I'm I'm trying to think through the, the evangelical mind on this one, right? Well, let me give you just a little bit of fodder when it comes to the evangelical mind. Everybody in that congregation, including Pastor Santee, all interprets the book of Revelation literally. That's too much fodder. <laughs> but I, I, what I'm thinking here is how, how do we naturally... I, I think the important thing is, is the question of natural use of language. And actually in our catechesis... Uh, with the children and with the adults. We, we try to help them distinguish between natural and literal use of language. I kind of hate this whole idea of the literal interpretation of Scripture. To me, that's a stupid way of talking about it. 
Because when you say something like that, it automatically, especially for the evangelical, it puts you in a camp that almost is pushing you aside. Because when you say, I don't believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible, what the evangelical hears is, you don't believe the Bible. And your argument is, that's clearly not the case. It's clearly not the case that, that what we believe in, what, what all Christians at the end of the day, and even the evangelical believes in, is the natural meaning of the Bible. And that's what we're talking about. The objection that we have toward higher criticism and so on is that they take the natural meaning of the Bible and they shunt it off into a, into a category of whatever you might have, myth, uh, for the creation story, we're not doing that. We're talking about the natural meaning of the Bible. But we are saying apocalyptic literature should be read should be read with that in mind, that poems, i.e. psalms, should be read with that in mind. Precisely. You know, I just got done reading I um, you know, for my devotions this morning, I was reading Isaiah, and he says Judah is a vineyard. Everybody knows that God himself didn't come down and plant a grapevine and wind up with wild grapes. What he's doing is he's using this as a metaphor for the shortcomings of Israel, of Judah. Wait a second, though, Pastor Boz. Isn't God the Father seen as the vine dresser, though? Uh, so you're playing with me now, <laughs> I see. <laughs> but isn't is, this shows the ridiculousness of the of the of the perspective, doesn't it? Correct. So what we're saying, I mean, let's back up now. Um, we got into this whole discussion by by talking about. What evangelicals espouse is the natural meaning of Scripture, not the literal meaning of Scripture. They say the literal meaning, but they really mean the natural meaning. Because no evangelical reads Isaiah uh, chapter 5 as a diatribe against a poor, inanimate vine that God planted and came with wild grapes. And when Jesus says, this is hearing that there's no objection from the disciples, where we've heard objection before, or confusion before. There was times when Jesus would preach in parables, when he, the disciples would come up to him and said, please explain this to us. And he would. He would, yes. And, and this other wonderful exchange in John 14, is this? Where Jesus is talking about going away, and they're saying, well, where are you going? We, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. And so... Well, what if he represents the way? Right. (laughs) What if he represents the truth? (laughs) See, the evangelical picks and chooses. Like, he's already started out. And when I say he, I'm talking about the evangelical, but clearly Pastor Santee. And the reason Pastor Santee's doing it is because this is all he was ever taught. He is parroting what's comfortable, what he knows. 500 years of... Swinglian doctrine. Exactly. And so, I mean, I'll be the first one to confess, when you're up against really studying something that you are unfamiliar with, realizing that this is a game changer, this isn't just something that you can pull out every now and then, a little piece of trivia that you can impress your friends with, he's got a presupposition already established, already firmly established in his mind. So he uses the same Zwinglian argumentation, and everybody in the congregation goes, okay. They go, okay, because this is the same stuff that they've been fed all their life as well, correct? Right. And it goes to the spiritual authority. This is what the spiritual authority 
says. Right. Not that he's got a, I don't know him, but not that he's got a heavy, heavy-handed approach here. It's just that it agrees with what all of their other spiritual authorities have said. And what's coming to mind for me right now is the first verse of that wonderful uh, hymn by Luther, Lord, keep us steadfast in thy word, curb those who feign by craft and sword, wrest the kingdom from thy son, and set at naught all he hath done. I want to I think I mean this. I don't think I mean this. I mean this in all absolute humility uh, as we're talking to one another and talking to you and criticizing uh, this sermon. We are not doing this in any other way than the position expressed in that hymn. Lord, keep us steadfast in the Word. The Word is everything. Take it away and take the true teaching of the Word away and you end up with a mess. And of course, the mess, and you expose this for me so many times is that there is no certainty i mean here the lord gives us wonderful meal so that you would have certainty that your sins are for christ's sake forgiven and it's gone it's gone there's nothing there and so what you're left with is the abyss of your own feelings and believe me i mean i've been there for years so i get it how gnawing how this eventually leads one to despair. Mm-hmm. And then when you're in despair, because you have no assurance and you have no comfort, when you're in despair, then you're just playing the game. Mm-hmm. And it takes a long time to get to despair. It's not like somebody wakes up and you know switches. You, know, you move from being despondent and discouraged to depression and then into the inky blackness of despair. It is awful. I wonder if that's the universal experience of all evangelicals. I would guess not. I would guess that um, some are wired differently. Sure. But here's the thing. We're not talking about this just for the despairing. We're talking about this for every one of you. The Lord Jesus wants to come to you. I'm thinking about Psalm 130 as you were talking about the despair, right? What a wonderful psalm. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your voice be attentive to me corrupt my cries of supplication if you O lord should mark iniquities O lord who could stand that there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared now the next thing is so critical my soul waits for the lord and in his word i hope my soul waits for the lord more than the watchman for the morning oh uh, more than the watchman for the morning oh israel hope in the lord for with the lord there is steadfast love and he will redeem israel from all his iniquities now look at the way he puts it doesn't say my soul works itself up to make itself acceptable for the Lord. It says, my soul waits for the Lord. Now, you only wait. I mean, the Christian soul only waits for the Lord based upon the Lord's promises. And the Lord's promise is that he comes to us. Wait, I thought he was in the lockbox. He's in the lockbox, though. Well, if he's in the lockbox, we're screwed. And that's awful. It is awful. I'm really, really rusty on the old Hebrew, but I was thinking through this and looking at this about how Jacob's ladder and how in the English there is this picture of Jesus who stands atop of the ladder, but how in the Hebrew the proximity is a lot closer, as if the Lord has already descended the ladder and is standing alongside, this is Genesis 28, 28. he is standing alongside Jacob. I haven't looked at it in Hebrew for a long time either. But, you know, what did did you say about the, uh, 
the translator. Yeah, the translator is a traitor, right? Uh, so Genesis twenty-eight, twelve, and so on. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. That must be the phrase you're talking about. And right. Aha. Uh, it says, or beside. There you go. I didn't yeah. even need to look up the Hebrew. It was already right there. Yeah. So he's, you see how the translation says that he's afar off. He's in the lockbox. Lockbox looking down. The Hebrew text is, no, the proximity is a lot closer. As if he has already come down the ladder and he is standing now beside Jacob. That is fantastic, actually. And, of course, Jacob experiences this one other time. Uh, and he winds up with a limp for right. the rest of his life. Right, and that that war or that uh, struggle, he struggles with God. That that didn't take place uh, like an air fight. Right, it's just an air, it's an air fight. An air guitar, <laughs> right? <laughs> like you're over there, I'm over here, but right. I'm going to hit you, and we're going to pretend we're we're struggling with one another. Right. So the translator there again is a traitor. And it's based upon a preconception of where God must be. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.